Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. George Dunstan, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you very much. I guess we should uh, mention how you and I reconnected, because it's been more than a couple of minutes. Yes. I think the last time you and I saw each other might have been in Charlottesville. It was probably in Charlottesville. I think I was a first year law student and you were in Charlottesville for some reason, unless you were, were you living in Charlottesville? I was not living there, but I, I came back a few times just because why not? Yep. I was only 22, 23. It's fun to come back. Yes. Great, great campus. A lot of fun. I think I ran into you, uh, one of those weekends you were back. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I was trying to extend my college experience. It was probably what I was doing without the academics. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was at for, uh, Charlottesville for law school, and that was probably extending my college experience with the academics. <laughs> was law school, well, I'm going to get into law school here mm-hmm. in a second. We should mention that Tim McCoy, I think, is the reason we reconnected. Yes. When we did. I, yep. I was eventually going to get to you because I've, I've been thinking about reconnecting with a lot of our classmates. Uh, and he said, you've got to talk to George. And I'm like, all right, great. He's, he's the next classmate. I'm, I'm going to try to schedule <laughs> And you're in town. We're at St. Christopher's today. Yes. Which is really cool. Yeah. And you're on the board. Uh, yes. I'm on the board of governors of St. Christopher's, along with Tim. And Tim's the chairman. Uh, Tim's going to be the incoming chairman. Yeah. Yes. And I have to say, for the record on the recording, I'm not sure why you guys allowed that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to comment. Yeah. I'll, I'll own my, my comment. You can uh, you can stay commentless. All right. So you grew up in Hanover County like I did. Or no, uh, no, that's I actually not true. grew up in, in Henrico Jersey. County, but okay. not too far away from where you grew near up. Near the line. Exactly. Right near the line um, in Chamberlain Farms right. off of Diane Lane. So you just go a little bit further past Parham Road and you're in Hanover. But technically where I lived was in Henrico. That's right. And your address, was it Richmond? No, my address was... Because uh, I, I lived near so there good after... question. Actually, yes, my address was Richmond. Yeah, because yeah. I lived near there after college, and my address was yeah, Richmond. Yeah, it was a Richmond address. Yeah. But you weren't born here. Were you born no, elsewhere? No, I was born in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey. Okay. And that's where I lived the first nine years of my life. And you have memories of living there, I imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's where I started school. That's where I went to uh, most of elementary school. Um, and then I moved to Virginia when I was nine years old. Do you have fond memories of being in New Jersey as a young kid? Uh, I do, actually. I mean, um, you know, I, I lost my father when I was seven years old um, while we were living in New Jersey. Mm. So there was that. Uh, but other than that, um, you know, I enjoyed my time there. Um, I remember having excellent uh, elementary school teachers being involved in a lot of different uh, activities, um, you know, uh, Cub Scouts and things like that. And um, then we moved to, to Richmond. And my mother moved here to begin her residency. She had gone to medical school in New Jersey, and um, her residency opportunity was at MCV. And so that's all we moved to Richmond. Okay. Losing a dad at such a young age, uh, were there other people in your life back then that uh, tried to fill that void for there you? There were. Um, you know, I mean, he had been a, a, a per- vice principal with the public school system there. So everyone in the school sort of knew what had happened to me and uh, sort of looked out for me. And he had some very close friends that made sure to look in on me and, uh, you know, make sure that I was doing okay. Um, but I do recall that that community was very supportive of me 
you know, uh, after what had happened. Uh, do you look back thinking what your life might have been like or how it could have been different if your dad had been around? Yeah. I mean, I think it would have been very different uh, in where I lived um, and just in a number of different areas. Um, you know, it gives you uh, a different perspective in a lot of different ways on life. And I think it it ages you a bit prematurely. You know, when I was younger, people would say, oh, you talk like an adult. And I think I did to a certain degree, but you know, part of it was because I think I had to grapple with some um, fairly tough emotions fairly early on in life. But uh, on the other hand, in some ways, and I've, I've seen an article which talks about the impact of the death of a parent on a young child and how, you know, although of course it's incredibly devastating, in some ways it can provide that child focus and direction in a number of ways as well. So. Um, for me, it's, you know, it's sort of, it's what happened. And, um, you know, uh, I think, it, of course, it was a, a very uh, impactful thing on my life, but it's something that I've learned, you know, was, was is to become part of my life and understand that, you know, uh, it's become part of, you know, who I am. And uh, I do try to think about him as I live my life and, try to honor in some ways what he, I think he might've hoped for me. And, um, you know, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to lose a parent as a young child. I can't imagine my dad's still around. I can't imagine, uh, growing up or even being a young adult, uh, without a dad around. And so you had the community that, that filled the void a bit. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. Uh, um, but they could, they couldn't be dad. No. No, it's, you know, I was, all of a sudden I was living in a single parent household and my mother was in medical school at the time. So, um, she really had to study at times, you know, when exam time in medical school came, we had to go, uh, stay with either relatives or close friends. So I spent a lot of time in other people's houses when I was younger and, uh, sort of, you know, and, and they were very wonderful people that took great care of us and were very accepting. Uh, but it was a lot of moving around. Uh, I wouldn't say, I didn't feel that it was unstable, but it was it was different. You know, it wasn't sort of, you know, come home, everyone's there. You know, um, I, I think I learned a little bit about how you have to be resourceful and flexible by having to go through that, that time period. Yeah, it's good and bad, right? You're being exposed to more people with more opinions and more life experiences. But, exactly. But mom's not around as maybe often as you'd like to, yeah. be, to do what moms traditionally or, or not so traditionally did. Yeah, and when we moved down to Virginia, the great thing was that my grandmother um, lived here and she really did a great job stepping in and taking care of us. Because again, my mother was in her internship and her residency and um, you know she was away quite a bit and she had to be on call. My grandmother who lived right over by City Stadium mm. um, really took uh, tremendous care of us along with my aunt and uncle. Um, so I spent a lot of time with her and with them. Did your grandmother grow up here? Oh, my grandmother. So my grandmother grew up in St. Paul's, Virginia. Okay. And she was an orphan, unfortunately. And I believe she came here to work in Richmond as um, a housekeeper. I think back in that time in the 30s, um, you know, they would bring people that were orphaned or whatever at a certain age to come in to work in homes in Richmond. And uh, she worked uh, in a house probably not too far away from here, I think, in Windsor Farms. Mm. And then she um, 
met my uh, grandfather who had grown up here in Richmond uh, over in the Jackson Ward area. And they got married in the early 40s, I think, maybe 1942. And then they had my mother in 1943. And my mother always tells a story about my mother was born and the next week or whatever, my grandfather got sent off to World War II. Oh, wow. <laughs> to, to serve uh, in the, I believe he served in the Asian theater as an MP. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. that's, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild that, uh, yeah, your grandmother was a was a new mom, right? Yes. Your mom was her first kid, and then dad's gone to war. Exactly, to war, yeah. And he was probably gone for a couple of years. I believe so, yeah. yeah. I think back then when they went over, they stayed until it was done. Yeah. Yeah, which is, uh, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. Because it's, it's tough to go anywhere like that for a few months, much less two plus years. Yeah, yeah so uh, mom grew up here she grew up in uh richmond um all you know 18 years through high school she went to maggie walker high school in fact she was the valedictorian of maggie walker high school in 1960 hmm. then she went to fisk university and um she was there for four years and she was a chemistry student and she was very fortunate to be able to get a job uh, at American Sinemid, which at the time had, I don't believe, any African-American chemists, much less an African-American female chemist. Right. And shows she was the first one hired, and that brought her to New Jersey. And I, from what she told me, she, all she did was work and go to church. <laughs> and she met my father at the church. And my father had been in that area in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He actually taught for the Piscataway uh, Public Schools. He had been there since the mid-1950s. He was originally from a town called Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Mm. And uh, I believe him and several other friends moved to New Jersey after college because sort of that's where the jobs were at the time. Right. Um, you know, that area was growing. And uh, that's how they met in the mid-1960s. And then I was born in 1969. So your mom became uh, the only black female chemist, only black chemist. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she's the daughter of an of an orphan who was a housekeeper. I mean, exactly. That, yeah. that is a meteoric rise. Yes, yes. And my grandmother was an amazing woman. Um, she, like I said, started working domestic work uh, here in, in Richmond, as, as many African-American women of the time did. Uh, and then she moved on to do, I believe she was did hairdressing and had a number of other jobs. But her primary job, and the job that I knew her in, that, that she worked in all the way up until the time that she passed away, was in the Richmond Room in Tallheimer's. Mm. And I don't know if you remember years ago in Tallheimer's, they had this quite nice restaurant right in the yep. middle of Tallheimer's. And that's where she worked. And she absolutely loved that job. It gave her a tremendous amount of independence and, you know, I think she loved it, you know, it had a very, very nice surroundings and uh, the, you know, it was, it, was a, it was the kind of place where, you know, uh, the sort of ladies would go for lunch. And she just loved the atmosphere and everyone in Tallheimer's knew her and liked her. And she had that job all the way up until the time until she passed away while I was here. You know, I was a student here at St. Christopher's when she passed away in, mm. in 1985. But she absolutely loved that job at Tallheimer's. And we would go at Christmas time and we would go shop at Tallheimer's and, and go to see her. And uh, the one thing I remember that she would bring back to have at her house was that Tallheimer's is a uh, rectangular chocolate layer cake 
People from Ritual remember this. Rectangular chop, chocolate layer cake with seven layers and a cherry right on top. I remember And those. I think U-Crop yeah. started to sell them too. <laughs> and the only place that I can't find it anywhere except there's a market around the corner right here from St. Christopher's called Libby Market that actually sells that cake. And every time I'm in Richmond, I get uh, a slice of that cake. Because it tastes so good and it, oh, brings, yeah. and it brings back fond memories Exactly, for you. Yeah. exactly. That's really cool. So you were nine when you came here. Yes. Did you go to Henrico County Public Schools for yes. a little bit? Yes. Um, I started at Chamberlain Elementary School, which is right in uh, Chamberlain Farms. Um, and then I went to Brooklyn Middle School for two years, which also in Henrico County, a little bit farther away from, from Chamberlain Farms. and uh, Right there off Parham. Off Parham, yeah. exactly. And I was there for two years... And then the way I ended up at St. Christopher's was um, I was not doing well uh, at, in the public schools just for a number of reasons. I, I was distracted and I just, you know, was unfocused and just the environment wasn't working for me. And uh, my mother had a friend whose son went to St. Christopher's and it was suggested that I could go to the summer school here at St. Christopher's. And so that's what I did. I guess it must have been the summer of 1982. Yep. And, you know, once I saw this campus and was exposed to the teachers um, for the summer, I'm like, you know, I don't want to leave. And um, I went in and spoke to the head of the middle school at the time. I believe his name was Mr. Woodard. That's right. And just said, hey, I'm interested in going to St. Christopher School. And he's like, well, you have to take a test. And this was, you know, now there's an entire um, admission cycle, which, you know, starts in January. And you have to plan if you want to go to, to uh, the school or any school like this now in Richmond. But at the time, this was maybe August before school started. And I took a test. And next thing I know, I was uh, enrolled and a student here at St. Christopher's, fall of 1982. Yeah, that was the process for me because you and I, we were talking earlier, we yep. were two of five guys Yes. Uh, four of us graduated, uh, mm -hmm. and the four of us that graduated at the start of that year, it was you, me, Rich Reynolds, and Al, and Al Carter. Mm -hmm. uh, and Al, we have to mention Al's full name. Is is it Horatio Horace Alfonso Carter? I believe so. The third yeah. or fourth? Maybe the fourth. I think he's the fourth. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, I got to know uh, Al's mom pretty well. She taught... Yep forever at John Marshall. She went to high school with my mother. Oh, did they? They yeah. knew each other. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lily was a great person. I, I'm sure I've met your mom, but I, I yeah, at some point while yeah, we yeah. were here at school together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it had to be kind of a culture shock coming here a little bit, coming from Henrico County public schools to a place like St. Christopher's. And by the way, your point about the campus, when you come here, you're like this, it can't be this nice. It can't be this idyllic. It can't be this, uh, inviting. Yeah. But, but it was. It is, yeah. Yeah. And particularly the middle school I always thought was quite a nice, charming building. It's just big enough that you don't feel overwhelmed by the building. And um, so I, 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 you know, once, like I said, I, I liked the environment and I liked the teachers. I liked the focus that I was getting from the teachers. And um, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if it was a huge culture shock um, because I'd had a mix of experiences. You know, I had been, although I had gone to the Henrico County Public Schools, um, you know, I had gone to uh, um, elementary school in New Jersey, 
and then I'd gone to summer camp a few other places so I'd been around a lot of different types of kids even by that point and so I was new, used to new environments and um, I think the biggest shock was the academics because at least where I was in my particular middle school experience I hadn't really been focusing as much and of course here you had to focus immediately. I mean, the academics here were quite rigorous. So um, in things where I thought that I was pretty good, such as, you know, English and stuff like that, it was a whole nother level. It's almost like I, I had to jump a whole year almost immediately by, when I came to school here. Yeah, we had, so. we had to adjust in a, in a hot second because the, the standards were so much higher. Yeah. Yeah, and, and looking back, it was great for us. But going through that at the time, you're like, man. And the amount of homework and, and, you know. But then again, I mean, you know, there were other opportunities and experiences here extracurricularly that I don't know that I had really taken advantage of when I was in public school that I was able to take advantage of when I was here in uh, St. Christopher's. I think, you know, it was that initial sort of uh, uh, movement from uh, public school to private school and then again, I think also, and you may remember this, going from the middle school to the upper school yeah. was a bit of a transition as well. Absolutely. Uh, who were your teachers in eighth grade? Some of them. I don't remember all of mine, but I remember <sighs> my favorites. Mr. Ackerman, I believe. We had, I think, were you in my history class with Fritz Kling? I was. Um, and then I think I had an art class, Miss Barkstrom. And then. Uh, Did you take Latin? Yo, yeah, well, I'm sorry. I may have suppressed that from my mind. Yeah, okay, yes. We were in Mr. Blatton's Latin class, and I haven't suppressed it because the instruction was not great, which it was. It was absolutely excellent. But, you know, again, talk about something that shows the rigor of the St. Christopher's School. Mr. Blanton's Latin class was something else. And I had, had no exposure to Latin. I think I might have had some minor exposure to French, but all of that, um, the, uh, the routine of, of practicing Latin and all of that type of stuff, that was very new to me. But I'm very glad I took that course. Oh my gosh, his influence uh, for me, I took, ended up taking Latin in college. Mm -hmm. I, I love the language so much, and I also like the fact that you didn't have to speak it. Uh, but in his class, there was no screwing around. Oh, no. You wouldn't dare. You know, and, and he was a really, I, I think back on the people that influenced me um, when I was here at St. Christopher's, and he was definitely one of them. Um, not so much in the classroom, because I only had, had him as a teacher for one year, but we would, uh, you know, he at that time was setting up the weight room over in the gym, and we would come here and I don't know if you, you may have shown up a couple of times. We would come here in the summer mm -hmm. to train. And for me, particularly, you know, I think definitely between ninth grade and um, 10th grade and 10th grade and 11th grade, it was something to do instead of getting into trouble. We would come here, we would go to the weight room. He made sure it was open for us every day during the summer. And we would just train. But it was great for me. I still weight train even at this age. Um, but it was great to do, it, it taught me the value of a routine and doing something productive even when you really don't have anything else that you, you have to do. And, um, you know, it was like, you know, if, if, if you have downtime, just why not go and exercise, you know? And uh, weight training, I'm, I'm not a great athlete. I'm not even a good athlete. 
and I'm not very coordinated, but the one thing I am is I have a fair amount of strength. And so being able to weight train was something where it was a physical task that I was actually fairly good at. And it's something that, you know, I've, 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 of course, I haven't kept up with it this entire time, but I would say more years than not in the past, you know, um, you know, 40 years, I've, I've had some sort of weight training. And I think it's important. It can keep you healthy in certain ways. And I just really enjoy it. I still train every week with my trainer, try to do some weight training. And as a kid, it, it instills some confidence in you too, right? It does. Yeah. It's like, well, I might not be the best athlete, but you know, I can lift 300 pounds. So that's something. Well, <laughs> and, and look, you and I, when we were in uh, school here, I don't think we appreciated how, uh, prolific Bob Blanton was as a weightlifter and what he had learned as a weightlifter. Yeah. Uh, and it was pretty rare back then because weightlifting was a thing you did, but it um, it's not as scientific and, and as uh, protocoled as it is today. But he was a, an alternate on the 72 Berlin Olympic I remember team. that, yeah. And the, and yeah. the 76 Montreal team. He was mm -hmm. an alternate, which, I mean, he unfortunately didn't get to compete, but he was that good. He was yes. still elite, yep. which is, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. Yeah, but I I, uh, I have great memories of uh, Bob Land, especially after I got over the uh, the fear yeah. <laughs> of being in that eighth grade Latin class. Uh, all right, so yeah, the, the jump to high school, the thing for me, and I'm curious whether you felt this, we had an hour and a half or two hours of homework in, in eighth grade. Yep. I, I feel like it doubled by the time we were in ninth grade. I mean, I think there was the consistency of it, that you knew you were going to have an hour and an hour and a half of homework every single night. For me, that's what I remember. And I recall that I had a tremendous amount of reading that I had to do, which I don't know that I had in my prior educational experience. And so, you know, that that really made an impression, having to read an hour every single night that, and, and, just to keep up with what was going on. And over the summer, we yeah. were reading. When, when, I, when I got the reading list, I said, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to have fun this summer, not read. Yeah. But yeah. I'm better off. Oh, I was glad I read all of those books. And, you know, for me, I actually do like to read. But what was great about the summer reading was that, you know, when I got to college, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, have you read the what's called the Western canon? Which there's a lot of debate around, you know, whether this one set of books should be the books that everyone has read. Because, you know, the one thing about the Western canon was, although these were great books, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity in them, at least until recently. Now, I think you've, they've added some books here and there. But the great thing was, when I had gotten to college, I'm like, I've already read most of these books, you know, because we had that summer reading assignment. And uh, so I was very glad to have done that, you know. And I think there's a, a value to being well-read, meaning that you have read a lot of the various classics and when someone makes that reference to Shakespeare or to you know the great authors Steinbeck okay it's like well I've read that or I've at least read something that he's written or he or she has written and so that's I think that's a, there's a value there yeah absolutely I, I think we read what roughly five books every summer yeah it was four or five books I mean you had to put in you couldn't go a week without reading if you wanted to keep up with the assignment yeah, you couldn't cram the last couple of weeks. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, uh, your fondest memories from high school here? That's an interesting question. <laughs> um, or maybe not so fond. Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was a mix. I remember it as a time when I had to work very hard, 
and when I was extremely goal-oriented and those goals, they didn't come easy. I had to work to get to where I wanted to go. But at the other time, at the, at the same time, there was a great camaraderie here that, you know, I still recall among the, the, the people that we went to school with. And, you know, there'd be a lot of good-natured ribbing, sometimes not so good-natured ribbing. But in the end, I mean, you know, it was still, we were all trying to get through this experience. And I think we recognize that this was an important time that would be valuable to us in the future. And, you know, we, I think our class was great in that we sort of were a, a group where more or less, you know, everyone more or less sort of got along. Yeah. And uh, there was a very strong camaraderie. And, you know, um, I think when I remember, you know, I, I was just in the chapel service this morning and that's the one space that really it hasn't changed in the, the 40 years since we were here. And that space I remember distinctly being there, uh, hearing the chapel speeches and just having that time to think and to reflect um, I think is, is a very important part of uh, you know, the high school experience for me. And I'm glad that, that we, we did that. But, and also various movements in the classroom, certain lectures, you know, I, I still have strong memories of you know, thinking, oh yeah, well, I never thought about something that way. And um, I think that one of the greatest things about my experience here was that there was sort of an intellectual awakening here for me that I would then continue to build on as I went through college and through law school. Um, and that to me was one of the most valuable parts of it. That and the discipline that came through both the hard academic work and the discipline that came through the athletics. Although I was never a good athlete, the fact that I knew that I had to participate every day and I was never going to be that successful in it. I was never going to have any athletic glory, but I knew I had to do it. It prepared me for times in my life in the future when there would be difficult things that I knew I would have to do that I didn't want to do, but I'm like, okay, well, I just, I got to do them. And so that it had a huge, huge value for me. Yeah, it was a mind, body, soul sort of uh, exactly. approach here, which yeah. they were very serious about. And when you mentioned chapel, I grew to adore being at, at chapel, mm -hmm. uh, especially my, my junior and senior years. I, I think we had all matured, certainly more mature than we were when we were in ninth grade. Yeah. Uh, and I remember some of the uh, speakers that came through. I mean, we were so lucky. Yes. Unbelievably yeah. lucky. Yeah. And, and I, I, I cherish those. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I, in fact, I, I had one uh, that touched me. I, I remember it t today, and I use it uh, in my life today, which is kind of crazy to think about since it was so long ago. Cool. All right. So you ended up going to an Ivy League school. Uh, Dartmouth College. Yes. Yeah, did you end up, uh, did you want to go Ivy League? Was that something you, you it, really strive for? or did It, it sort happen? of happened very quickly. So we went into... Uh, senior year and at that time I had the expectation that I would stay in state to go to school mm. I had had some cousins I had a cousin that went to Tufts University and I had gone to his graduation recently and I'm like oh well Tufts might be an interesting place to go to school because I really like Boston um, and but I didn't you know you, you, Tufts you have Harvard you have BU um, I didn't think that there was no way I would ever, you know, get into to Harvard. 
But I had had an uncle that had gone to Dartmouth College in the 50s, actually. Hmm. And somehow his fraternity panel, which had Dartmouth written on the side of it, ended up in my possession. And I, so I always had that name sort of stuck in my head. Huh. And uh, the idea of going to school in northern New England in a rural environment sort of, for some reason, always appealed to me. I always liked that part of the country. I don't know if you've ever been up to northern New England, but the hills and the mountains and the fresh air. And um, so when we entered um, senior year here, I was just like, okay, well, let me pick four schools. And I, I knew I, I wanted to apply to Virginia and William and Mary and, and actually thought most likely I would go to one of those two schools. And I did apply to Tufts um, because, I, again, I was interested in, in going to school potentially in Boston. And then I just added on Dartmouth as <clears throat> a reach. Kind of a flyer. Yeah, like a flyer. And, um, you know, I... I really focused on preparing, you know, back then, you know, now they have the common application. We didn't have the common application. No, we did not. And you had to really focus on um, putting together your application. And again, where I had uh, the, the benefit of St. Christopher's and all that meticulous work, particularly uh, Ron Smith's English class. A lot of writing. I, a lot of writing. And I remember really, really focusing on my college essays and putting hours and hours into them, but also making sure that they looked really good. I remember choosing like the color of the paper because back then it was like a paper application that you put together. And this would become a part of me, my thing, all the way through my career, even looking for jobs at law firms. I always paid meticulous attention to the way my resume would look and the way I presented myself sort of on paper. And so um, I, and the last thing, which ended up being the thing that got me into to Dartmouth College, was I had um, videotapes of my Battle of the Brains mm. um, uh, competitions. I, I'd forgotten you were. Battle so of I was Brains. on the Battle of the Brains team, which was on the local PBS channel. And the one thing, and I'm still quite good at history trivia. Mm. So um, you know, I answering all these questions on TV related primarily to history, culture, that was sort of my thing. And I said, you know, last minute, I mean, again, it was a different college admissions environment where you could just throw everything on top of your application. But I took the videotape and just stuck it in the application envelope. And when I, I got to know the admissions officer later when I actually was at Dartmouth, she's like, that was it, that's what got you in. She's like, my kids were watching that video and I was like, you know, she was like, oh, where is this? Oh, Richmond, you know, Virginia, St. Christopher's School. That's what got me on the list. That's great. <laughs> so That's awesome. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, who who would have thought? Yeah. And I, if anyone from Dartmouth is listening to this, you know, it certainly wasn't the only thing that got me into college, I would hope. But it, it was it was part of it. it what, it's what made me sort of stick out and uh, become a little bit unique. And so, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up. And then once I got in... You know, I think I remember having a conversation with my mother and we looked, I'd gotten into all four schools and she's like, well, if you got into Dartmouth, just go to Dartmouth. I'm like, yeah, I agree. And that's, that's what I did. Seems like a no brainer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who were your teammates on Battle of the Brains? Do you remember? Uh, Wesley Wright. Okay. Bill Lamb. It was two years. So one year I was an alternate. Okay. 
And the second year, I was actually on the TV team. Right. So, um, Emery Elmore and um, Kenlo Nelson. Okay. Mm-hmm. Were you the only one from our class besides Bill? Yes. Okay. Bill was our captain. You and Bill? Yeah. All right. Nice. Did you vote for the captain? I don't know that we voted. There were only four of us. Yeah, it's it's been a weird vote. Yeah, yeah. And we did fairly well. We lost to Lee Davis, actually, in uh, either the quarter or the semifinals. Yeah, you guys didn't see that coming. No. Well, they were pretty good. I mean, you know. I mean, they obviously were pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, you know, and, and for several years, we had won the Battle of the Brains Championship. I don't know if we had won it the year before, but we had definitely won it for several years. So we had, we were sort of one of the star teams, but that particular year we came up a little bit short. But I loved it. I still do trivia to this day. It's fun. I still do like bar trivia. I, I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. All right, before we leave your high school days, mm-hmm. uh, name a couple of your uh, favorite teachers. Well, I, I would have to say uh, Ron Smith and, of course, David Boney. Who could forget him? Our entire class took his European history class. It was yes. all 70 of us. Yeah. Um, and uh, Lee Camp, all excellent teachers. I think she may have been the only female teacher. She was at, yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah. And ones that I still remember, uh, Andy Smith, of course. Um, and even in areas where I wasn't that strong, uh, mathematics, uh, Jim Boyd. Jim Boyd was fascinating. Cal Boyd. I mean, I mean... I can't say, I don't know that I ever had a poor teacher here. I mean, they were we, all excellent. We didn't have bad teachers. Yeah. We, we had excellent teachers. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Very fortunate that we had all excellent teachers. Yes. Yes. All right. So you're at Dartmouth. Was it a big transition for you? Well, it was the transition of going from uh, Richmond you know, which was, I, I felt, you know, when you're in Richmond, at least at that time, it was very much, you know, about Virginia and the locality. And all of a sudden, you're in this environment with people from all over the country. So you're just someone from somewhere else. You know, it's like everyone's from all these different places. And you're not necessarily from one of the big fancy cities. You know, you're not from you know New York. You're not from L.A. You're not from Chicago. Um, so there was a little bit of, of that transition, but I sort of enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting all the different types of people from all over the country. And, uh, you know, everyone had a little bit of their different perspective. And you had the great thing was you had people from all over. Um, I would probably say there weren't as many international students as you would have in an Ivy League school now, but you definitely had people from all over the United States. So of course, there was more representation from the Northeast, as you would imagine, but generally it was people from all over the place. And so I just sort of was the kind of guy that was going around, shaking everyone's hands and meeting everybody. And that resulted in me becoming uh, vice president of my class Mm -hmm. freshman year. And one of the activities that I would pursue at Dartmouth was um, student government. Mm. So I held a number of student government roles and that was one of my um, activities. Academically, uh, it was a bit of a transition. Again, St. Christopher's prepared me well enough to avoid the areas where I was weak. So I was definitely weak in math, but St. Christopher trained me well enough so that I was able to test out of math. But I did have a a core curriculum at Dartmouth. You had to take four sciences, you had to take four social sciences, and you had to take four humanities. The social sciences and the humanities were easy for me. 
But the sciences were a little bit more difficult. And I do remember I had to have a little bit of an academic adjustment. I took geology um, my first year and, you know, sort of had to struggle to, to uh, keep up with that. So it was, um, you know, that there was a little bit of an adjustment. But I actually took very well to college life. You know, there were some people that, you know, I think had to adjust to sort of being on their own. And even for me, you know, uh, I, I think I'd been well prepared enough that that wasn't a huge struggle for me. I knew enough, okay, I had to go and do my work and do my, you know, you don't really have homework in college, but go to class and do what you need to do. And, uh, you know, I, I would not skip class. I, I remember seeing, and it, generally at a school like that, people don't skip classes, but you know, some people did. But, you know, for me, particularly when I got into the academic areas, which I really loved, such as history and religion, um, I would never miss a class because mm -hmm. the lectures to me were absolutely fascinating. The professors were tremendous. And, you know, just the intellectual experience of, you know, being in one of these history classes or religion classes. And it was, it, for me, it was, it was a great experience. I, that's where I learned to enjoy and love learning. And I did some fun stuff at Dartmouth too. I was in the fraternity and everything. But still, I, I really, for me, what sticks out about that experience was the quality of the education. Mm. And just sort of the discussions that we would have even outside of the classroom, like, you know, the intellectual discussions. I, I really enjoyed that as well. Sort of a uh, always on vibe there, I'm guessing. Yeah, although not as much as you think, but a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that. I mean, the one thing was you had such a talented pool of students and, you know, you get into a conversation with someone and, and even at that young age, some of the insights that they would come up with would really be like, wow, you know, it's like I never looked at it that way. And if there were any skills that I honed uh, there, it was more conversational skills and, um, you know, how to uh, approach sort of learning and then also independent study because um, I pursued particularly in history a lot of independent study I did a semester at the London School of Economics in 1989 and um, I a large part of that was independent study so for me having to learn how to do the research particularly in history you know learning how to collect primary research organize it um, you know, build that into a, a thesis and putting that on paper and expressing that in a cogent, clear way that people could understand it. I think that was, for me, the greatest value of the, the college experience. Did you enjoy Tony Sumandera as an English teacher? Oh, yes. The best teacher I ever, one of the best teachers I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> to love thy hall here at St. Christopher's. And, uh, I told Tony I was, you and I were doing this today, or at least I told him I was here. And uh, yeah, Tony is in here. So I'm going to pause real quickly. Yep. Right, we had a nice little break yep. chatting with Tony Simandera there mm -hmm. off recording, and I believe we were talking about your experiences at, at Dartmouth. Uh, you majored in history. I, I did major in history, and uh, again, that was always my strongest subject um, in high school and in college. And um, as part of the history program there, I did a summer, or sorry, a semester at the London School of Economics in 1989. That's cool. And uh, I really have always had a strong interest in European history and in particular British history. So it was an opportunity for me to really focus on that. And as part of that program, we would go on tours of all the various uh, castles and 
you know, palaces, of the Palace of Westminster and government buildings. So, I, and I, I, a part of that course is also a history of London. So I have a great understanding of London and all of its history. And I was just there actually in, in uh, September. And it's always great to go visit these places that you've learned a tremendous amount about. It sort of gives you another dimension to your, your travel there because you're like, okay, I know what that building was and what happened here and all of that type of stuff. But uh, for me, uh, studying history was just, it was great. And we had a very strong history faculty um, at Dartmouth. And uh, it's almost like for fun for me, sometimes I'll just sit down on Wikipedia and start reading different historical facts and stuff like that. I just, I find it interesting, fascinating. What part of London is uh, super fascinating or what geographical spot on the map is most so intriguing? And I lived in an area called uh, Bayswater, which is uh, right near Paddington Station and not too far away from um, Hyde Park. And, you know, Hyde Park is one of, I guess, one of the world's great parks, you know, almost like, you know, saying Central Park and other things. But, you know, you can walk from Hyde Park past Buckingham Palace through St. James Park by St. James Palace. It's just over the years, the British had built this tremendous uh, complex of just majestic buildings and parks and that's almost unlike anything else in the world. So I think that particular area and of course, I like actually men's fashion. <laughs> so you'll often find me if I'm in London in uh, St. James Square uh, in that area, which has a lot of the best men's shops, particularly shirts. And it's the one item of clothing I try to save up for to get made in London. So I have quite a few uh, London shirts. And that's like sort of my guilty pleasure to go get a tailor-made shirt made for me in London. You are much better dressed today uh, than I am, uh, and I imagine that's true every day of the year. Uh, sometimes. I can be particularly, um, you know, of course, during the pandemic, as we all were, I, I gained a, a very large um, collection of sweatpants and everything mm -hmm. as I was working from home. But, you know, being in, working in New York, it's a bit of a fashion town, so I sort of picked it up. And then when I was doing, for 10 years, I did international work. It's sort of skipping ahead a bit. But um, when I was an in-house lawyer for Merck, and I had to go to Italy quite a bit. And I would say until then, I was probably your standard off-the-rack dresser. Um, you know, I'd probably go to Brooks Brothers and get your basic suit and tie. But I had to go to Italy in a short period of, in just a few years, I had to go to Italy like 20 times. <laughs> and these guys, I would sit in business meetings in Rome. And I noticed how these guys were impeccably dressed. I mean, everyone had just tremendous style in Rome. And that sort of got into my head. And I was like, you know, sort of looking at the way they dressed and how it, they all put it together. And I think I picked up some of those things. So I'm like, okay, well, now I know I can wear this type of tie with that type of shirt. And then ever since then, I've been sort of a bit of a, a, a fashion type guy. But that, that was sort of the turning point, going to Europe and uh, seeing not just Italy. Well, Italy, I think, is probably, and I pro might get in trouble for this, the best-dressed country in the world. But it's, also... It's in, it's in their culture. Yeah, France, London, you know, particularly in European business culture, people pay a lot of attention to how they dress. And so when I was going to meetings there and in negotiations, I started to pay more attention to how I dress. And so that sort of, I've sort of kept up with that over the years. So and, I think that, And you enjoy it. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it's sort of like a, a bit of a hobby, you know, sort of, okay, this fabric, that, how does that look? And I think that the two habits I picked up from all my European travels was the dressing and then also uh, good wine. Mm. Because again, I was going out to dinner in London and Paris and Rome, not so much London, but Paris and Rome. And before that, sort of all wine sort of tasted the same to me. But then, you know, you go out to dinner in Rome 20 times, and you have someone from Rome ordering really good Italian wines over and over again. You're like, okay, that one's better than this one, and this one's better than that one. And you start to learn, and you begin to develop like a real wine palette. And so that got me into my hobby of uh, buying wine. And so I like to take wine trips uh, when I can afford it. <laughs> so I don't do it every year, but I love to go to California and take two or three days and visit different wineries. Mm -hmm and sort of buy some wines and, and store them. And I like to share them with friends. Every year in, uh, at home in New Jersey, I do a wine tasting for a group of about uh, 12 or 11 friends. And uh, again, it's just a hobby that I enjoy. Yeah, you have a wine cellar? I have, I don't have a room for a wine cellar, but I have offsite storage ah. for my several hundred bottles. Yeah, <laughs> wine, I mean, it's so. a real hobby. Yeah. Wow, yeah, I still don't have a palate for wine. I never have. Yeah, it takes a while to, to, to pick it up, but once you've tasted a few hundred wines, you'll different ones, you'll you'll start to make the distinctions between the various. And really good ones, too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, so back to Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. what, did you know that uh, you were going to be a lawyer when you were a kid? or what? I was that? always, that was always my goal. I mean, I was always strongest in, um, you know, reading and writing, and I was never very good at math. So all the sciences and those disciplines, I knew I was going to be that that good at. And even just uh, finance, I just didn't have the mathematical mind for it. Um, but you know, uh, being a lawyer was something that you know I thought that would be interesting. And um, yes, I mean, if you had if you had caught me when I was a senior in high school and asked me, you know, what do I think I wanted to be? It was going to be a lawyer. And pretty much everyone that went to school with me at Dartmouth would know me as someone who said, okay, I'm on my way to law school or I'm going to apply to law school right after this. I might have had a little bit of an interest in investment banking, but more or less I was, you know, there was the idea that I was going to go to, uh, to law school. Did you, when did you know what kind of lawyer you uh, wanted to be? Well, that happened much later. I mean, and, and I don't know that I really made a conscious decision. It had to do with the opportunities that I got. So um, I graduated from college in 1991, and I started at UVA Law in the fall of 1991. And, you know, there was a bit of a recession going on then. And um, the job, first job I got was with a New York law firm called Brown and Wood, which specialized in securities law. So that sort of made the choice for me that I would become a corporate lawyer. I could have been a litigator, but uh, for whatever reason, the corporate side just sort of appealed to me. I liked the, the and this wouldn't come until later on in my legal career, but the negotiations mm -hmm. aspect of it. And again, as I was talking about before, the, the idea of meticulousness and documentation, which is a large part of corporate law, you know, putting together and comprising and putting together documentation, whether it's a prospectus or other things like that. So the documentation aspect of it um, appealed to me. Also, the, the fact that it was sort of um, 
a little bit faster paced, meaning that you had a deal which might run a few weeks or a month and then you got that deal done. Whereas, you know, legal cases can go on for years, yeah. litigation cases. So I like the fact, okay, I'm getting things done. I'm getting this deal done. I'm getting that deal done. Move on to the next deal. Sort of the pace of it. And I also like the fact what, that it wasn't as local. You know, litigation tends to be, you know, uh, uh, and this is not entirely the case, but, you know, a little bit more locally focused, whereas corporate law can take you almost anywhere in the world. And it did with me, as I mentioned. You know, I did a lot of work in Europe, the Middle East, some work in Africa. Mm. So uh, being in corporate law has, you know, sort of exposed me to a lot of different things. Uh, it sounds like you've been to six continents. Pretty much. I'm trying to think of where I haven't been. <laughs> I'm guessing you've been few. to Antarctica. That's the only country. Yeah, I haven't, yeah. Um, I've been to most places. There are a few places. Like I didn't go to Asia for the first time until I was in my 40s. So there are a few places, but I mean, places like Europe and um, uh, I've been to Latin America. Europe, I've been to over and over and over again. Uh, I've been to South Africa, Egypt, Morocco. But the first taste of international living I got was when. I was here at St. Christopher's. I don't know if you remember that I was an exchange student to Israel, an AFS exchange student. I don't remember that. What, yeah. What, what year in school? That was in between uh, junior and senior year. I, when we finished here junior year, about a week or two after that, I got on a plane. I went to Israel. I was there for eight weeks. Holy cow. Yeah. You had to feel like you were on a different planet, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Back then, particularly without the internet and cell phones, I mean, you know, it was a completely different environment. And uh, it was fascinating. But for me, it was like a tremendous experience. It was mind-opening for me to go to Israel, which was, you know, a completely different country, um, you know, culturally and just in a number of different ways. But also, I mean, tremendous history there, of course, you know, to go to Jerusalem <clears throat> I lived outside of Tel Aviv, and but just to, to live in another country and see the daily experience of living in another country at that age, it it lets you realize that okay, the whole world's not like where you come from, and so you need to be open to very different ex experiences and different ways of living, and that other people, you know, have very different lifestyles and cultures that they come from. And it allows you to understand that people have different cultural perspectives and to weave that into what you're doing when you're dealing with them, whether that be in business or any other you know, sort of uh, uh, experience. So years later, when I was working, doing mostly international legal work, I think that early experience of living completely immersed in a different culture helped me to understand some of these extremely different cultures that I was going into with different styles of communication and a different approach to business and a, a very different way in some, some types of ways of looking at the world and being able to sort of, instead of imposing your own perspective on those individuals, understanding a little bit better what their perspective is. And then when you do offer a perspective, it's now informed, or at least better informed. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And Israel, uh, I mean, the history of that part of the world goes back thousands of years. Yep. But the country, when you went there, had been around just under 40 years. Yes. It was still it was still a very new new country. And still not that far away, maybe 10 or 15 years away from the wars that they had had in the 1970s. And you definitely, you, 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 you felt the 
impact of that in the fact that you know they still had to maintain a very active military at all times and you would get on a bus and you would see guys with machine guns and you know that was my first experience with a, a high security environment because you know they still had to worry about terrorism and, and bombs and, and things of that nature uh, but yeah it was uh, yeah you're a fairly new country and most of the people that had moved there had only been there for one or two generations. Yeah. So it was, uh, but it was a fascinating experience. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time there and met a lot of good friends. Um, unfortunately, I didn't learn that much Hebrew, but uh, you know, I I still look at it as one of the most uh, great adventures of my of my youth. Yeah, uh, you learn things that your classmates couldn't dream of. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you can't really learn some of the stuff in the classroom. You have to, to see it. And it left me open to different experiences insofar as, you know, eating food and just realizing, you know, that there, you're going to be presented with things that are very different from your own home experience. And you need to be open to that instead of just saying, okay, I'm not going to eat that or I'm not going to go there or I'm not going to, you know, you learn that if you really want to experience some of these cultures, that you need to open yourself up to these experiences and 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 be more of a little bit of a I guess sort of you know a sort of go with the flow to a certain degree. Let's go back to law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, was UVA part of your choice? They have a great reputation, um, yeah. but it's uh, also kind of brought you home too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, coming from Virginia and being an in-state uh, student, I knew that Virginia was definitely going to be in the mix. Um, you know, I, I thought a little bit, maybe it'd be nice to go to Harvard Law. I think I looked at Georgetown and Yale, but it was either, it wasn't like I applied to like 20 law schools, either I get into Yale or Harvard or I go to Virginia. And that's pretty much what I ended up doing. And Virginia, again, great law school, one of the best in the country. So I certainly, uh, was very happy with that choice. And once I got there, I was really happy with that choice because Virginia, at least at my time there as a law school has a very unique culture where we, you know, really the students sort of cooperated with each other. You have the softball culture, which is very strong at at UVA and a very important part of first year. But then what you also had was, and I don't know if I'm giving out a University of Virginia Law School secret. I certainly can't be the first to talk about this, but maybe I am. (laughs) So, you know, um, law school can be very competitive and certainly... Um, as when I went to Wall Street and met people that had gone to other law schools, they're like, oh yeah, people are ripping pages out of textbooks and stuff like that. But we never had that at UVA. And we had sort of the, the first year, you know, you take a certain set of core courses and the, those you sort of do on your own, but then second and third year are sort of electives. And what we would do at UVA, and again, I hope I'm not giving out a UVA law secret, was at least at this time in the 1990s was um your first day of class you'd have this you get this sign up sheet and it would be you know i don't know 13 weeks semester or whatever you'd have one to 13 and you'd sign your name next to one of those numbers and that would be the week that you were responsible for so what you knew was that you had to go to class for that entire week and you had to do all the assigned reading. You had to nail it. For that week. And you, you definitely had to nail it. You had to. So you, you know, you could go the other weeks, but that week was. And I actually, I would say, I didn't use that as an opportunity to skip class. I would go to most classes. But your particular week, you had to know backwards and forwards, up and down 100%. And what you would do is you would prepare this very meticulous outline with summary of lectures, 
summary of cases, all the major points. And it would be, I mean, it would be like a 10 or 13 page paper once you got done with it. And what we do is we go around in our mailboxes and we would drop off, you know, I would have that outline list and I would drop off my week's outline to all those individuals. And so, and they would do the same for me. So at the end, I would have this huge, thick outline, you know, and that would be basically my study guide. And preparing for exams was just working through that thing over and over and over again. And if you did that, you, you know, you had a pretty good understanding of the, the, the coursework. Now, again, I don't, there, I, I, to my knowledge, Nothing that that was in any way violated any honor code or anything. Nah. No, it was just it's just a way of organizing. It's just, but it's just a different approach. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of any other law school where the students were so. And this is not just one or two classes. This is almost every class where the students were in such cooperation with each other. You know that we would be willing to do that. And one of the reasons was is that one of the great things about UVA as a top law school is that we were all going to different places. So, you know, NYU, Columbia, both great schools, but a lot of those people were, you know, dead set on working in New York. But the great thing about UVA is that you had a group that wanted to go work in New York and you had a group that wanted to go work in DC and become Capitol Hill type people. And you had a group that wanted to go back home to Kentucky or Tennessee or wherever they were from in the South. And you had a group that wanted to go to California. So we had a very diverse group of people that were interested in going different places. So it wasn't like, oh, okay, if that person, you know, is, you know, 10 points ahead of me in the class, they're gonna take my, you know, this big fancy Wall Street job that I want. We were all going, different places. But for me, as a law school experience, I was very glad that that's the law school that I chose. And um, like I said, the great thing was the again, sort of, I've been fortunate in that all the schools I went to, from St. Christopher's to Dartmouth to UVA Law, were places that prized camaraderie mm. and being part of a group and sort of a culture of community. And so for me, you know, all three of those schools, I felt that I was like a part of a community that was in, in many ways supportive. So, you know, I, I, looking back on it, I think I made three, you know, excellent choices. And of course, from time to time, I gripe about this aspect or that aspect of one of the Yeah, schools. nothing's perfect. But in the end, I, I can't say that I had, uh, I, you know, in the end, I think it, it worked out uh, great for me. You know, all the there's three schools that I chose. I, I have a UVA law uh, educated guest on a few weeks ago who shared your 13-week uh, Oh, okay. Knowledge. So I'm not the first so to you're share. You're not the first to share <laughs> on a recording. Yeah. Uh, and, but he also described to me how UVA was not focused, and this was a little surprising to me, was not focused on helping people pass the Virginia bar or the New York bar. It was more of a national feel. And so yeah. you, you could go to any state in the union and succeed, but it wasn't necessarily going to set you up to do well for taking a specific uh, bar. No, because people were going, you know, all over the place. And then you had to take another course. And that was the summer of 1994 when I stayed in Charlottesville to study the bar. There's a special course called Barbary. And that prepares you for the bar. The one thing that sticks out about that time was that earlier in the summer, actually we had gone to our first course, and I come home and the O.J. Simpson Bronco Chase 
happened in on. June of 94. Yeah, right? that was that time period. So I, that's why I, what I remember about, you know, sort of studying uh, for the bar. But I studied for the bar and then went up to Albany and took the bar and got you took, it. You took the New York bar. I had to take the New York bar, yeah, because I had a job in New York City. Ah. And um, that was... Uh, I got it on the first the first try, so that was lucky for me because I, I didn't want to have to take that exam again. And, and, and the New York bar is the, the only one you took. You didn't think about taking Virginia. No, I only took it. I only took the New York bar. Yeah, because you were pretty confident you were going to live and work in that area. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to go, you know, anywhere else. Yeah. So you know, the New York bar was enough for me. How were you notified that you passed? So back then, again, sort of pre-internet, although we did have email at that time, but I don't think the internet was... Nowadays, you know, you, you, you know the results come through the internet, but what would happen was all the first-year associates in New York law firms, like, you know, were completely focused on when the bar results were coming out, and um, it was sort of like college admissions, except it's, I, it may have been the reverse, like, you know, in college admissions, you see the fat envelope, you know you got in, the small envelope, you didn't get in because fat envelope has all the stuff for you to sign up. I think it's the reverse for the bar. If the fat envelope means you failed it and you're gonna have to reapply to take the bar, the thin envelope is just a one message thing saying you're, you got in to the, you know, you, you passed the bar. So, what happened was I was living in a building called Tribeca Tower, which was not too far away from the World Trade Center, which is where I worked. And um, the, you, you worked in one of the towers. Yeah, I worked in tower number one, 57th wow. floor. And so what happened was some guy got a call from some guy at some firm in Midtown that, you know, the bar results were at. And so they were showing up everywhere. And um, I call... <laughs> Anyone who knows a little bit about the ge geography of New York will know next to the World Trade Center, you have the uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Postal Station, which was my postal station because I just lived a few blocks away. So I called over. I was so, you know, sort of focused on this. I called over to um, the, uh, the, the post office and got a very friendly guy. And um, I was like, hey, have you done your delivery to... Uh, you know, Dwayne Street yet. He's like, no, no, I'm about to go do it. And he's like, um, you know, I'm like, do you have anything, you know, from that looks official? It's like, yeah, there's a bunch of official stuff here. And I'm like, he's like, I'm like, when are you going up there? He's like, well, I'm going up there in the next, you know, uh, 30, 40 minutes. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go up there. So I went up to my building to wait for the bar results. And then the guy shows up at the mail. And then as soon as I saw that thin envelope, I'm like, all right. I passed the bar, thank goodness. And, and the, the thicker envelope was because the actual paper application was in there? Yeah, because they're like, you failed the bar, now you need to apply for the next one. So, you know, the next seating of the test. So I still remember that experience. But, you know, it was like, as you can imagine, and lawyers are sort of, you know, a little bit geeky, but we were all sort of focused on, you know, when the bar results were coming out. And uh, so, it was, so it was great to sort of get past that. So not have to worry about the... That's a massive milestone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, were you living in New York during 9-11? I was. Now, that's an interesting story because I was in some ways very close to what happened, but then not. So by 2001, I'd finished my time at law firms. I worked for two different law firms in New York. 
as a corporate and securities lawyer, and I did some mergers and acquisitions work. Um, and then in 1998, I joined Merkin Company as their junior M&A and corporate lawyer. And then, um, so 2001, I was still in that job. But I still lived in Manhattan. And every morning I would get up, I parked um, in, in Tribeca, which is near where I lived, and then I would drive through the tunnel. And I was supposed to be at work at 8.30 every morning, but you know, sometimes I'd be, you know, early or late. And um, I think that that morning, we actually had primary elections in New York. And my voting precinct was, and, and those who are listening that know some of the um, geography of New York, my voting precinct was right behind the Tweed Courthouse, which is right next to City Hall. Now, from City Hall, you get a very clear view of the World Trade Center. So I remember, I'm like, okay, let me get up early, early. So this is, it is well before eight o'clock, which is when I believe things started to happen. And I said, let me get up early and go vote. But I, the one distinct memory of that morning is going to vote and looking out to my right over City Hall Park. And it was a beautiful day, clear as a bell, and seeing the, the Twin Towers, which, of course, I had no idea that would be the last time I'd ever seen them live. And... Um, I got in the car and I was driving along and listening to the radio and I would say probably about 10 minutes outside of the tunnel. That's when, you know, I started to hear about it and um, I drove, you know, I immediately got to work and no one was working. Everyone was huddled around TV sets and I talked to people. I had a girlfriend at the time and I talked to her. She was in Manhattan. I talked to another buddy and then all of a sudden, all cell phone communications with Manhattan went out completely. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't talk to anyone back in New York. And, um, you know, I just, I just got a hotel room in, um, out in New Jersey where I, by where I was working. And then the next day, um, I knew I couldn't drive into the city. So I just got on a, a train and had to go all the way around Manhattan, so I had to go through Staten Island through to Brooklyn. And I wasn't able to get back home. Well, here's the interesting thing. The second day, I actually, they were allowed people to go down that lived in the area to go down to that area. And I do recall seeing a lot of things. I mean, there are a lot of troops and everything, but pictures that I've never seen published you know, but it, you know, they had a huge military presence down there the day after it happened. And the police, you know, you had to, I had to go through several police checkpoints. And they said, okay, do you live down here? And they're like, okay, you're going to be able to go in. You're going to go in and you're going to get your stuff and you're going to leave. And we'll tell you when you can come back. Mm. And I lived on the 17th floor of a building and all the power was out. And I remember having to go run up to my apartment, throw a few things in a bag, run back, and then I had to live at my girlfriend's place for the rest of the week. 
And then finally, I don't know how they told us, but they're like, okay, residents of this area can come back. And the whole area was just, it was devastating. It was just, you know, I mean, there was not only the, the human tragedy, which was, you know, tremendous, of course, but also the, um, the, the physical damage that had been done to that part of the city, which was my part of the city. You know, I mean, it, several buildings were completely destroyed and then a whole a lot of buildings sort of around it were also devastated. And, and, and you know, there was so much debris and rubbish and you just you never knew, you know, how is this area ever gonna come back from this? I mean, a whole section of the city had been destroyed but I tell you, one of the most fascinating things over the, the 13 or 14 years after that was to see that part of the city over time recover and rebuild and to come back to be even, you know, in some ways uh, stronger than it was uh, before. But, you know, I remember the years of for a while there, there was just a big empty space and the train would sort of come into this big sort of empty, just, just void of, you know, because they were building all those buildings. And, you know, now, you know, you have the, um, the, the excellent memorial, which was actually designed, um, by a Dartmouth classmate mm. of mine. Um, and, um, you know, the, the new world trade center and the beautiful new, um, uh, train station. Of course, you never forget the the terrible tragedy of it and sort of all the lives that were lost, which was just devastating, you know, to to the community, you know, just uh, because, you know, I knew people that were involved. I knew guys, a firefighter. I knew people that worked in those buildings. Um, but um, also, but, but, you know, even remembering that, just to see a city like New York rebuild itself, was just something to uh, an amazing thing to witness over the course of many many years um but that being said i don't think anyone that experienced that and like i said like i said i wasn't right there but i definitely what you know it was experienced part of what was going on I, th I don't think you'd ever forget it because you know it was just completely you know out of the blue it just you know one day it was a normal day and then yeah know, something like that happens. there's no way so. you could anticipate that yeah. Uh, and I won't get into the conspiracy theories around what the yeah, U.S. government no, no. knew and all that. Yeah. Um, I will say, as a guy who was living in Central Virginia when that happened, it, it was, um, it, even though the events were horrific, it did bring the country together for a period of time? It did. And it, it really brought New York together. That's, I would say, you know, I moved to New York in 94, and I had issues with New York. I mean, everyone does that moves to New York. I mean, no one comes to New York and oh, it's the greatest place in the world. I love it <laughs> because this city is rough on you. It's it's New York is tough. It can be tough on people. It's particularly tough on young people. But what I will say is that experience when that happened, I'm like, you know, they attacked not just the city that I moved to. They attacked my city, and ever since then, although I'm proud to have been from Virginia. There's no question about it. And although I do live in New Jersey now, really, I'm a New Yorker. And ever since that moment, I've been a New Yorker. I'm very proud to be. And that's my city. There's a lot that you can say about it. But I love New York. I love visiting New York. I don't know how people get there. <laughs> it can be tough. 
It can be tough. If you're not from there, it, there's an adjustment period. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been up there probably 10 times, and uh, I've been pushed out of the way every time I go up there. Yeah, yeah. It has its, it has its difficulty, but to me it has, you know, I mean, there is really no place like it. And like I said, I've been a lot of different places in the world. There's no place like it in the world. And uh, it is, at the same time, it can be frustrating, but incredibly charming, and you will see almost every slice of life that you can think of walking around the different parts of New York. And uh, it is really, the, the, in many ways, the center. You know, your, your, your podcast entitled Center of the Universe, but I see New York as the center of the world. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, when you travel, and you've traveled extensively, mm -hmm. If you could go somewhere for a couple weeks, six weeks, where's that one place you want to go to that's not New Jersey or New York or Virginia? You know, there are places that I really like. I, I like California. I love the weather and the, the scenery. Um, Europe, of course. I mean, I love the culture and the food and the refinement. Um, I think it would depend sort of for me what type of mood that I was in. You know, if I want to enjoy food and culture, Europe's the place, right? If I want to enjoy wine and good weather, I'm off to California. If I'm just looking to relax in the sun on a, on a beach, then I'm probably off to the Dominican Republic. Mm. So it depends on what particular, you know, I've been a lot of very fascinating places. And, you know, someone asked me earlier today when I told them that I'd been to a lot of different countries, which one is your favorite? I said, I can't pick a favorite. I can pick maybe five or six that I really like, but I can't pick like one that's like, okay, I definitely would go there and stay there for long periods of time. Several, they all have different attributes, you know. That, any, uh, any of those places you would think about living, maybe in retirement? You know, part of my recent travels have been checking out different places for potential retirement possibilities. So I went to the Dominican Republic for two weeks in the winter to get out of the cold and I'm like you know I like it here but I don't like the fact that I can't drink the water yeah. and then I went down to Colombia for two weeks I'm like this is great but a great country wonderful people but you know part the part of Colombia I was in might be a little bit dangerous so I mean you know I'm still sort of testing different places out and the problem is I actually I do I can't I like the seasons so I don't know that I want to live in a warm climate the entire time like I really like New England but I don't know that I really like the winners there, right? And again, I really like places like Latin America, but you know, during the summer, I don't know if I could live there or during the wet season. So I don't know, I might have to move around from point to point when I retire, we'll see. Yeah, Belize, if you've never been to Belize, you can check that out. It's on my list. Yeah, it's definitely, a uh, that would be warm most of the year and you would have a rainy season, but uh, yeah. when it's not raining and it's not brutally hot, it's a great place to be. Mm -hmm. uh, you're uh, at St. Christopher's today uh, for two or three reasons. Can you share what you were doing today? So um, about two years ago, 20, I guess almost three years ago, 2020, um, we created a black alumni network. And... This is something that actually quite a few, almost all colleges have sort of black alumni associations. And many private schools are now starting to form black alumni networks. The idea is it allows 
black alumni and current black students to sort of keep in touch with each other because what we found in a lot of these schools was that people sort of didn't know any other African-Americans that, except for the ones that they were in school with, that had gone to the school. And so we had a series of phone calls uh, where we, we got students or alumni from all over the country to come together and talk about their experiences. And as a result of that, the idea was that we would form a, a network um, which would meet from time to time and try to do things to both, you know, support recent alumni and support all students here at the school. And at, as the first uh, thing that the school did was, uh, unfortunately, the very first African-American graduate of the uh, school had died recently, I believe in uh, 2021. And so we decided that we would um, have a chapel service um, to uh, commemorate his life. And um, I was asked to speak at that chapel service. And I spoke. That's why you and I are talking right now. Because exactly. Tim McCoy heard that. He said you were amazing that yeah. day. Thank you. And then as part of that, we um, had, if you go to the front of this building, you will see a um, monument dedicated to... Uh, Mr. Walter Lindsay, who was class of 1975 and the first African-American graduate uh, of St. Christopher's. So we dedicated uh, that monument, and then we later in the day had a networking session with current students, allowing them to ask questions of us about our life and careers. And so this is the second annual mm. um, uh, uh, iteration of that event. And this year... Again, unfortunately, we lost one of our, our uh, very prominent graduates, uh, Congressman Donald McEachin, who was elected to four terms in Congress. And he was a graduate of St. Christopher's class of 1979, uh, a very prominent attorney uh, here in, in Richmond and a state legislator and a congressman. And so we felt that, of course, he should be honored uh, here by his school. He also was uh, on the alumni board and the board of governors of the school. So it was fitting that he be recognized. And a number of his classmates uh, attended um, today's service. And then we also, after that, after the chapel service, had a networking session. And uh, then I came over here to meet you. So that's why I was here today in, in Richmond. And the networking session included students. It did, yeah. yeah. Allowed them to ask some questions of us about what our experience was like here and you know how we felt it impacted our lives and then to ask questions about, you know, how we proceeded, you know, college, graduate school, career, that type of thing. That so. networking can be really powerful. Are you surprised that it took this long to, to put that network together? You know, I am um, to a certain degree. I mean, this is something that, you know, I've been involved on and off at the school for many, many years. And from time to time, I was like, you know, maybe we should get together uh, a group of the African-American alumni. I think, you know, with what happened in Richmond here in 2020, it really galvanized the understanding of, you know, that there are a lot of issues that can be discussed and that can be productive. And so that's why I think things started, you know, after 2020 began to happen sort of more quickly. But um, I think it's good not only for the African-American students, but for the entire community to sort of uh, understand and recognize the value that diversity has in an institution like this, you know, which has a long and storied history and which in many ways for a large portion, portion of its history, 
maybe was not that diverse, but has been for you know almost 50 years now, integrated and to dis, you know, demonstrate the value that that type of uh, diversity has. Because the fact is, the entire world's very diverse. I mean, as I mentioned to you, I've done business all over the world, and even today I don't travel as much, but I deal with people you know, all over the place, countries all over the place, and to compete in today's world, no matter what business you're in, you need to be able to deal with different types of people, and that needs to begin early. And so I think every educational institution has to have an element of diversity in it in order for it to be a, a, a fruitful, education uh for people and i i don't i certainly am not do not want to anyway disparage certain types of school which do focus on particular groups because you know you do have certain um you know religious groups that like to have their own form of education and that is very important too but at the same time i think in doing that and pursuing that it's also important to have some element of diversity so that you are able to deal in the broader world with different types of people. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I'd love to get your opinion here. There are some <laughs> schools that uh, seem to be going back to this notion of the same race in one dorm. Um, yes. It's not, it's not a, a rampant, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. And it feels like we're... we're maybe go in the wrong direction with that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you might be referring to is sort of affinity housing, right? So mm -hmm. you have these big universities, or even not so big universities, where a particular group wants to live with that particular group. And I guess my opinion on that is that that can have some value as long as it's interspersed and mixed with experience of having to live with other types of people. So I see that the, uh, the idea of affinity housing, and we did, at Dartmouth we had some affinity housing. We had affinity housing for African-American students. We had affinity housing um, for um, Native American students. But I think if you're gonna have affinity housing that you, know, you shouldn't spend all four years of your college experience living just in affinity housing yeah. you can have it as part of the experience and then you need to go live with other people as well so you know you need to to sort of mix it up but um i understand that the reasons sometimes for affinity housing but i think it should it it should be just one of a number of features of a, a school and it shouldn't be like the central focus and certainly an entire school shouldn't be set up around just affinity housing okay all right, I love that answer, and that's the first time I've heard affinity housing. I think that's what you're referring to. I, I guess I am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the idea is that, and it can be affinity housing can be based on a number of different things. It can be based on uh, a race. It can be based on sex. It can be based on sexual orientation. It can be based on religion. Again, the concept is that for a small portion of my educational experience, I'm going to spend some time around people that have my same interest or. Or, or like me. Same thing, you have language affinity housing where people just speak French in the dorm. you know. And the idea is that's gonna enhance that particular part of my education, but it shouldn't be the entire thing. It gives depth to the experience. Exactly. Where being around people that are not like you or don't, don't have your experiences gives you more breadth. Yes. Fair enough. All right, I've, we're gonna close with a question that I ask most people. Mm -hmm. um, it is different. You, You've listened to a couple of these episodes. If you made it to the end of any of them, you 
maybe know this question's coming. You're a talk show host, one time only. You have an hour, hour and a half to conduct your talk show. You're the host, so you get to decide who your guests are going to be. Your guests can be alive or dead. Your guests can be famous or not famous. They can be family members, friends, uh, somebody you, uh, from hundreds of years ago that you would really love to just sit down and uh, explore their brain. Uh, your four guests, and this, by the way, this is meant to be more revealing mm -hmm. than, than standard uh, conversation. Male guest, female guest, musical act, and then if you're into comedy, uh, a comedian. Who are your four okay. guests? Uh, male guests, Frederick Douglass. Okay. Female guest. Let me circle back to that one. Okay. Um, musical act, Sting. All right. <laughs> um, was the comedian? Yep. Richard Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Godfather. Yeah. And um, I'm just trying to think, because I've, I've been fascinated by so many uh, female historical figures that have had such a tremendous impact on history. Um, I think to ask some really interesting, I'm going to pick out two, and they're going to be a little bit unusual because they're from way back in the past. But again, I've studied quite a bit about their lives, and I just find them fascinating. I'm going to say... Uh, Cleopatra and Queen Elizabeth I. Okay. I, I did not see either one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm a history guy. Yeah, you're, so you're definitely... I was going to go, I went a little bit into the past in Frederick Douglass, but way into the past. But again, just because being witness, I think Cleopatra being witness to all of that history around the, uh, the transfer of Rome from a republic to an empire, which is really a huge turning point in the development of the Western world, um, it would be fascinating to understand that what was really like, what was going through the minds of people like Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony as they did what they did. And Queen Elizabeth I, I find her to be, and again, like I said, I studied um, British history quite a bit. She was someone who was quite interesting because, again, not born in proximity to the throne and then having to go through all those different machinations, again, at a very interesting turning point in British history as it was changing from basically a Catholic country to a Protestant country. And again, the perspective that she would have had on that and then eventually coming to the throne and bringing England to probably the greatest point to its history in that date, again, just... So I'm fascinated by people that have to deal with tremendous amounts of change, and both of those figures um, definitely went through a lot of changes in their lives. And they get credit for doing it well. They do. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, George, I'm glad we got to connect, man. It's been, it been a long time. Yep. I'm glad Tim uh, was there for your speech that day, yep. and uh, I wish I'd been there. I mean, he, he was raving about it, but I Thank appreciate you. you doing this, and I hope yep. uh, our classmates and others uh, check this out because it was yep. a great conversation. Thank you very much. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.